All right. Good morning, and welcome to welcome to Park Church. We are glad we're glad that you are here with us. And uh, on this Father's Day, I'll say again, Happy Father's Day to all you fathers out there uh, and all that goes with it. It's good to see you. My name is Matt. I'm a pastor here on staff. You'll have to excuse me for the moment when I look over here. The sun is shining off of one of the cars just blinding my eyes, and I can't even see all you wonderful people, um, a lot of whom are here for child dedications. And so I want to say to you guys, um, welcome. We're so glad that you're here with us this morning. The theme for this morning's service all kinds of ties together. Um, It's Father's Day, and so there's that. We're wrapping up our series called You Do Who You Are. And this is a series we've been in all spring. We've kind of been talking about how um, it's God who makes us who we are. And God hasn't just made us anything, but he's made us particular things. And so we've kind of picked out four of the key kind of core identities as to who God has made us to be. And you've heard about these all spring if you've been here. If you haven't been here before, though, um, I'll give you a little bit of a rundown. God has made us his children. Um, He loves us and he has made us his children, and we are meant to relate to him as children to a father. God has made us also um, his missionaries. And this was kind of a weird one for us, but, but um, the news of what God has done through Jesus is so good, and it's so glorious, and it's so for everyone in the entire world that he calls together a people like us as his children to go and share that good news with the world around us. And so we are his missionaries. As missionaries, we are also God's servants. And being a servant is sort of the basic posture that we all take as people who are trying to follow after Jesus if we are trying to do that. And so we serve one another here in the community, here in the church. Um, The church, by the way, is not a building. It's not a place. The church is a people. You are sitting amongst the church. You are not sitting in a church. Just get that out there. Um, But we serve one another not only here, but we also go out and we try to serve the world. And so we're children, we're we're missionaries, we're servants, and as children, we're family. And so um, this morning, our theme going along with Father's Day is uh, you are God's family. And last week, Brian was up here and he was talking about how we're brothers and sisters. And sometimes within families, brothers and sisters fight. Brothers and sisters can disappoint one another and hurt one another. But as family, we bear with one another. We forgive one another. um, And it's worth that struggle because God has called us together for something good. And that was last week. Um, This week we're going to continue on that theme, but we're going to expand it, not just brothers and sisters, but also sort of spiritual fathers and mothers. That's what we're meant to be for one another. And so that's where our theme really kind of connects with child dedications for this morning. Um, In a few moments, well, not in a few moments, after I speak for a bit and then we sing a song, then there's going to be child dedications. And child dedications is something that we do here at Park a few times a year. And this is when a family decides um, they have a kid or a few kids, and they decide, we want to dedicate this child to the Lord. We want to raise this child or these children up together to the Lord. Um, And this is something that we do here because we believe here at Park Church that um, raising children to be Christ followers is not something that belongs only to the blood relatives, only to like the father and mother and siblings, um, but it belongs to all of us. And so when a child or children are dedicated here at Park Church, what we also say to that child and to that family is we are going to take responsibility for growing you up. We are going to take responsibility together for raising you up to be a Jesus follower. 
Now, I love trial dedications for a few reasons. One is because like, the kids are cute, and inevitably a kid does something hilarious or grabs a microphone and says something inappropriate, and we're hoping for that this Sunday. Um, I like child dedications because it reminds me of what we pledge to do, my wife and I, what we pledge to do for our kids um, and what we pledge to do for one another. The reason I love child dedications for this morning, though, is because child dedications are kind of, um, kind of a reminder of what we are meant to do for one another. Because we pledge together to raise these children up to follow Jesus and to do what we can with our resources, with our time, with our position in the child's life. We pledge to do what we can to raise that child up to know and follow Jesus better. Um, and that's what we are meant to do for one another to grow one another up to, uh, to follow Jesus and to know Jesus. We are called to raise one another up like that. Now, I can look back on my life, and I'm going to get the stool out, so that means it's story time. Um, I can look back on my life and think about, think about the times where someone has, um, where someone has directly uh, taken a chance to grow me up in following Jesus. I don't know if you've ever had a moment like that if you're someone like a, if you're someone who follows Jesus, but someone took a chance to do something intentional to grow me up in following Jesus. I would say 10, 15 years ago, um, probably closer to 15 years ago, I was in my early 20s, I would say, uh, back when this church was called Orb, and uh, really all we had back then was like a high school program and like a young adult program, and we didn't do things like this. But one of the things we did do was there was a family who had a haunted mansion up in the Poconos, and we would take retreats up to the haunted mansion. Um, there was one weekend we did a young adult retreat, and young adult was like, you know, early 20s, that sort of thing. And so we go up there for this retreat, and it was a great time, but back then, back then, I would say the culture here at Orb, back in the day, um, we were really good at sarcastic humor. We were excellent at biting, cutting, just over the line or over the line or well over the line humor. And that was sort of like the way we rolled. It was our culture back then. And that's changed a lot since then, thank God. Um, but that was sort of the culture back then. So there was this one retreat um, where that was dialed up to 11, right? It was, I mean, it was on. Um, and we were having a good time with it. It was mostly the guys. Uh, it was all the guys. We were having a good time with it. Um, and there was one person who just ended up being the butt of a lot of the jokes. Um, and it wasn't because we didn't like the guy or love Like, we did like him. We did love him. And part of the way we showed our perverted affection was to be cutting in our humor. Um, and so it just went over the top, though. It went over the line. At the time, though, I didn't think much of it. Like, to me, it was just like, this is how we roll. I'm not going to say or think or do anything like this is just this is just how we do things so we go home from the retreat the next day monday morning i got a call from christian now christian um was a good friend of mine like we were in a band together we hung out all the time he was a good friend of mine you might remember him he was he was the pastor here for a very long time um but he was kind of the leader of the whole shebang back then um and he called me and said hey matt let's go to red bank and hang out so I was like, sure, this is something we did all the time. Go to Red Bank and hang out. We parked somewhere down by like the train station on Mama Street, and we walked up Mama Street. And it was a normal conversation. And I remember we got to somewhere in front of Count Basie, 
um, where the Decemberists did not play last week, much to my chagrin. Um, so we were walking down Mahomet Street, and uh, we were in front of Count Basie, and he kind of changed the conversation and said to me, I want to talk about your behavior on that young adult retreat. And I was like, um, can we not? <laughs> he said, the way you carried yourself, the way you talked, like the way you joked, it was, just, it was just not right. Like, it was just over the line. And I was like a little like offended and I was like, you know, like my first response is what most people's first response would be, which would be to push back, right? I was like, no, I wasn't. I, I wasn't. And he was like, listen, you were. You were, you were inappropriate, you were over the line. My second response was to um, rationalize it, right? It wasn't just me, it was everyone. Everyone's doing it, which, as we all know, is a totally legitimate excuse. Um, everyone's doing it. And he was like, I don't really care that everyone was doing it. It was still over the line. Um, and I like, you know, and then like the third response is that sort of like, how dare you? What gives you the right? That kind of response. Um, I didn't give that in full froth, even though I wanted to, but it was like, how dare you? What gives you the right to tell, you know? And he kind of like interrupted my train of thought. And he said to me something that like, I won't, I don't remember the exact words, but like, I won't forget this. He said to me, you're, you're like a leader in this community. And you want to be a leader. And I think you were made to be a leader. Leaders in the community of faith don't act like this. And then he said, followers of Jesus don't act like this. If you want to grow, if you want to go to the next place as a follower of Jesus or as a leader in the community, you need to stop. You need to, you need to grow up. You need to grow past this. And I kind of had nothing to say because I know in my heart he was totally right. Um, I didn't want to admit it at the time, but I could see he was totally right. And what I did is I went home and I stewed on it for a little bit because it was frustrating. Um, but then I called the person who was the butt of the jokes and I apologized and I I owned what I did, just like Brian talked about last week. Um, but that conversation that he had with me in front of Count Basie on Mama Street was something that I look back on as something that changed the trajectory, not only of my faith, but of my leadership and thus my life. Um, he acted to me in that moment like a brother acts, but also like a sort of spiritual father, like a mentor, that sort of person acts for me. Um, and because he did that, because he had the courage um, to do that and to say those things, because he cared about me enough to do those things, my life is different because of it. But, but also, he saw, he saw something in me that I wasn't living up to. He saw something in me, some, some sort of unmet potential. Um, and he said, if this person's going to meet this potential, if he's going to, like, he needs to grow. And he, and he took the chance, and he did that for me. And my life was different because of it. I didn't like it. I didn't want it. I didn't want to hear what he had to say. No one really likes to hear how they're just being a big jerk. But I look back now, and I'm so thankful that he did that. I'm so thankful years later that he changed the course of my life in that way. This is what we're meant to do for one another within the family of God. Um, the problem is, we don't often want that. We don't look for correction. We don't like 
to invite people in to say, hey, here's what you're doing wrong. Here's what you should be doing differently. We don't like challenge. We don't like change. We don't like people to come in um, and say, hey, like you're doing X, Y, and Z, but here's what you could be doing. Here's what you should be doing. Because for a lot of us, we just feel like life is overwhelming. We have enough on our plate. We're just trying to get by. We don't need someone coming alongside of us and saying, hey, you could be doing this instead, right? Um, but how else will we grow? How else will we grow if someone, doesn't, if someone doesn't tell us? If we have to wait to see it for ourselves, there's a really good chance that we'll be waiting forever because if there's one thing that's true about us, um, it's that we're not good at seeing ourselves. We have really poor vision when we look in the mirror. Sometimes we see ourselves and it is comically inaccurate, it's comically bad, but sometimes it's tragic. It's, it's tragically bad. When we look at ourselves, it's like we have these gigantic blind spots, and we can't see what everyone else is seeing. Um, and sometimes this looks just like on that retreat. Like, you think your behavior is totally fine and whatnot, when everyone else, everyone else is saying about you, like, what are you doing? Like, how can this guy act like this? Um, or, you know, like, the sort of, like, typical case, right, is when, like, the guy dates the girl and all of the girl's friends knows this guy's bad news, it's not going to end well, it's not going to end well, and it doesn't end well, and the girl has a huge problem and breakdown, and, and um, she's talking to her friends, and her friends are like, look, we could have told you it wasn't going to end well, and she's like, why didn't you tell me? I couldn't see that for myself. We're not good at seeing ourselves. We're not good at seeing our situations. We're not good at projecting ourselves into the future and saying, if I stay on this course, where will it end? And it's not just with bad things, like being a jerk or being in bad relationships. It's also like good things. Like I can see that you have potential, that you have gifts, and I don't think you see them about yourself. And so sometimes what we need is someone else to see for us. And that's where family comes in. That's where this family here at Park Church comes in. Um, family is supposed to be the place where like, you love each other enough and you know each other well enough, and there's no fear of losing or being kicked out of the family, so you could say the hard things, right? You know the other people well enough to know um, what they're missing out on or what they're good at that they're not. And, and so um, family is supposed to be the context where those sorts of difficult conversations, where that sort of growth can happen. Now, I know in real life, family uh, fails us again and again, and I know it's not always like that. But here in the family of God, that is, that is what we're supposed to do. That's what we're, that's what we're called for, um, to know each other and to grow each other uh, together like that. Now, we are given a model for what this looks like in the New Testament. There's two men um, who model this for us in a really kind of personal way. Uh, they were two early leaders within the Christian community. Their names were Paul and Timothy. Um, Paul, you've probably heard of, Paul was a guy who wrote a lot of letters in the New Testament. He was one of the first leaders in the Christian church. He was a missionary. His basic thing is he would go from city to city around the eastern Mediterranean, and he would stay there for months or maybe for years, and he would introduce people to Jesus. He would kind of get them organized, and he would basically found plant churches with, like, all over the Eastern Mediterranean, and the church's goals were to reach out to the people in those areas and introduce them to Jesus. And once he did that, he would move on to a new town. Like, once that church was good and up and going, he would move on. He couldn't be everywhere um, all the time, 
And so he would write letters back and forth, and that's kind of what he did. Um, he would also raise up leaders within those churches, but then he also had co-workers who went around with him. And you might know some of these people, or like you might have heard of some of their names, like Barnabas, like there's a St. Barnabas medical system, right? Um, that's like one of Paul's buds. Like he was one of the co-workers. There's all kinds of guys like that. Timothy, Timothy was one of those guys. Timothy seemed to be really Paul's right-hand man. Um, Timothy was with him a lot. Paul met Timothy when Timothy was really young. You can read about this in the book of Acts. This is about like the church after Jesus. Um, you can read about this in the book of Acts. Paul met Timothy when he was young. Timothy's mom was Jewish. His dad was Greek. So he had kind of the background, but also sort of like the education. Um, it says that he, he was well thought of by everyone. When Paul met Timothy, Paul saw something in Timothy that was special. Paul saw something in Timothy um, that he was meant for something bigger and something better. And so Paul invited Timothy to join him as a co-worker in his work. And in fact, if you read a lot of the New Testament letters, they're actually addressed from Paul and Timothy. Um, so there was one city in particular that like, featured prominently in Paul's strategy to that Mediterranean area, um, and it was a city called Ephesus. Ephesus was on the coast of where modern-day Turkey is. It was a big, bustling, important city. Um, it was like a political center. It was a trade center. It was an economic center. It was, it was um, a religious center, not for like Christianity and Judaism, but for like all the gods and goddesses. I mean, this was a happening place. It was one of the largest cities in that region at that time. Um, Paul knew the importance, the strategic importance of that city, and so he went through great lengths to like, start a good, vibrant church there that could reach out to that area with who Jesus is. Um, and you can read about this in the book of Acts. He, he, he endured a lot to have that church go and go well. This was an important church, a beloved church, but Paul also knew this was a challenging church. I think because of how much pressure it was, um, it would be like being a pastor in the middle of like New York City. It was huge pressure pressure. It was a challenging place to be. In fact, when Paul left the Ephesian church for the last time, he warned them. He said to them, look, guys, when I leave, other people are going to come in here. Um, and he described them as savage wolves. These savage wolves are going to come in here and they're going to try to eat your people up. So you have to protect your people. You have to lead your people well, teach your people. He said, shepherd the flock Shepherd the flock well, because once I leave, people are going to come in and try to ruin what God is doing here. And so who does Paul put in charge when Paul leaves? He puts in charge Timothy. Um, Paul most likely wrote a number of letters to Timothy over the years. We have two of them in the New Testament, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. It's difficult to nail down the exact timing and location of these letters, um, but one of the letters, 1 Timothy, <clears throat> was pretty clearly written to Timothy while he's at Ephesus at a time where all of the things that he warned that could happen would go bad, all those things have gone bad. And Timothy is there. Um, he's in charge of it. He's, he's there to deal with it. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a role or been thrust into a position where you feel like you're stepping into it and it's like, I am not ready for this. I don't know what to do. I'm not prepared for this. I'm not good enough for this. Um, we're doing child dedications, and a friend of ours just had a baby two days ago and came home yesterday. And I was thinking, 
If there's ever a time in your life where you feel like you're not prepared for this role, it's when you get that baby in the carrier and you have to put it in your car and you drive home with it. It's like, ooh, can't someone else do this? <laughs> Maybe that was just me. I don't think my wife felt that way. <laughs> but I did. I still do sometimes. But that's Timothy here. He's in a difficult situation, difficult people, um, and he's not sure he has what it takes. And Timothy, on his own, he might not make it as a leader there. And so what does Paul do? Paul does what any spiritual father, what any brother who wants to raise up his younger brother does. He writes him a letter to encourage him, to instruct him, to urge him forward. This is how he begins his letter. He says, to Timothy, my loyal child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. You see right off the bat, there's this sort of spiritual father and son relationship that Paul has with Timothy. Um, it's very affectionate, it's very loving, but um, Paul, Paul is right from the beginning casting this letter as in like, you're a child um, who I'm going to help, I'm going to help grow you up. He continues, I urge you, as I did when I was on my way to Macedonia, to remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach any, diff any different doctrine. Um, that was one of the issues in Ephesus and not to occupy themselves with myths and endless genealogies that promote speculations rather than divine training that is known by faith. Now, what does all that mean? It's a lot of weird stuff. Don't worry about what that means. Um, the bottom line is, in the Ephesian church at that time, there was all kinds of teachers coming in. These were the savage wolves who were teaching all kinds of different things, leading these people on the wrong track. Um, and it's kind of beside the point. Do you hear what the main point of what Paul says in the sentences? Don't leave. Timothy, Stay there. Stay in Ephesus. I know you want out. I know you want to split. I know the wolves are there. Their teeth are showing. They're savage. I would want to leave too, but don't leave. We need you there. God needs you there. Timothy is afraid. He's unsure of himself and his calling. He's not sure if he's able to do what he um, was put there to do. He's not sure if he has the fight in him to get this church back on track. And so Paul continues a few lines down. He says, I am giving you these instructions, Timothy, my child, again, uh, like a father and a son, my child, in accordance with the prophecies made earlier about you, so that by following them, you might fight the good fight, having faith and a good conscience. Father and son, Paul sees his responsibility to raise Timothy up, to grow him up, to encourage him, to hold him up, to push him forward. Paul is reminding Timothy here of the potential that he has, the gifts. That's the, um, the prophecies made earlier about you. He's calling Timothy back um, to what he first saw in Timothy, when he first met Timothy all those years ago. But Timothy now, he's stuck in this place where he feels, he just feels inadequate. He feels tiny. He feels too inexperienced, afraid. He feels like the mountain in front of him is just too large. And I wonder, uh, have you ever felt that way about what's facing you? That the stuff that God is calling you to do or giving you to do or like the path ahead, you just feel inadequate for it, you feel tiny for it, you feel like the mountain is too large. Or just the lemons that life gives you, um, they're too sour? I don't know what the metaphor would be. If you make a mountain out of those lemons, that mountain is too big for you to climb. <laughs> I don't know, I'm not good with analogies. 
no, with metaphor, right? Um, this is where Timothy is. It kind of comes to a head in chapter 4. Paul continues. He says to them, or to Timothy, let no one despise your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. He says, let no one despise your youth. It's debatable how young Timothy uh, actually is here. If you do like the math through Acts and whatnot, he's probably not like a young person. Most people, when they read this, they're like, oh, he's like 18 and given this role. No, he's probably like in his late 30s or early 40s. Um, he's not young when it comes to age. What he is, is he's young in experience. Um, he hasn't been put in this position yet. Um, it's like he's green in relationship to the task at hand. And so Paul sees Timothy with his mountain to climb and is saying to him, I know that you feel like you're young, but I believe in you. I mean, I believe in you because I believe God believes in you and God has put you there. So don't let your youth get in the way. Don't let your inexperience, your inadequacies, don't let that stop you. You could do this because God has put you there to do this. And then he says, and then he says this. He says, do not neglect the gift that is in you which was given to you through the prophecy with the laying of hands by the council of elders. Put these things into practice. Devote yourselves to them so that all may see your progress. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Continue in these things. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Do not neglect the gift that is in you. This is the core of what Paul has to say to Timothy, to grow him up, to raise him up into the leader, into the man, into the mature follower of Jesus who Paul sees that he could be. These are the words of a spiritual father to a son who needs that. He reminds Timothy of the gift that was in him that God had given him, that he saw, and that the whole Ephesian church also saw. Paul sees something for Timothy, listen, that Timothy can't see for himself something bigger, something better, some unmet potential. Paul has a vision for Timothy that goes beyond what Timothy imagines for himself. And the role that Paul takes in Timothy's life um, as this sort of mentor, as his brother, as this father, is to push him towards that potential, to kind of give him the kick in the pants that he needs to go and do this, to encourage him, to challenge him, to exhort him towards it, because he knows that God has made him for something more than what Timothy is currently showing. God has given him gifts for something more. Um, and maybe most importantly, Ephesus needs a church. It needs your church to be uh, the light in that darkness. And Timothy, you are the guy to lead it. They need you. If Timothy recognizes these gifts and develops them and uses these gifts, look what Paul says will happen. In doing this, you will save both yourself and your hearers, the church. That is what's at stake in Timothy seeing his gifts and using them to serve Jesus. And that's what's at stake for us. I mean, I don't want to over-dramatize it. We're all not going to become pastors of churches in Turkey. But that's what's at stake for us. We all have gifts. We all have potential. We all have things that are within us that God has given us that we have not like turned on yet or that we're not using properly or that we're not being um, equipped to, you know, one of the problems with the church is that we have these gifts and we keep them in our sock drawer, right? 
We don't wear them. We don't use them. Um, The relationship that Paul has with Timothy gives us a sort of model for the kinds of relationships that we can have with one another. So putting aside the specifics of Paul and Timothy's relationship, because theirs was a little unique, right? He was like one of the founders of Christianity who wrote a lot of the Bible. That's not us. Um, But it's a model for us. Putting those specifics aside, though, I want to throw out to us a few ways that we can take an active role in growing one another here at Park or wherever church you're a part of and you come from. And so the first way to do this, and this is kind of on one end of the spectrum, is really to try to be a Paul to a Timothy. See the gifts that someone else has and find ways to encourage them to develop those gifts and to use them. See the potential in people. Encourage, push, point them towards it. Um, Bill, one of the other guys who speaks up here sometimes, he gave a message months ago on friendship. I don't know if you remember that, but one of the things he said in there, and I love it, I'm going to steal it, is um, have a vision for your friends. And I'll say the same thing for our brothers and sisters or for our spiritual sons and daughters here at Park. Have a vision for them. Paul had a vision for Timothy. He saw what he could be. He saw what he wasn't being. And he said, I have a vision for you. I'm going to push you. I'm going to challenge you towards that because that's what we do in the community of faith. Now, maybe someone comes to mind um, immediately. And it could be something simple like, you know, my friend Bob, he's so compassionate. He's so good with people, but he's so concerned with X, Y, and Z that he can't use his compassion. I'm going to encourage him um, to put aside X, Y, and Z and to go and be compassionate because he can make a real impact for people. It could be as simple as that. It could be something like, my friend Sarah, she's amazing organizing people and like leading people, and she's not doing that. I'm going to encourage her to like, to like join a ministry team and then lead a ministry team and do something good for the kingdom of God and, and make a huge impact like that. Can you see yourself doing that for someone else? Saying to someone essentially what Paul says to Timothy here, um, God has given you a gift. Don't neglect it. Use your gifts. Don't neglect it. it It sounds simple, but it can be huge for someone. It might be a little strange to do at first, but if you're in a relationship with someone where you're close enough with them, where you know them and they know you, um, Paul seems to say, like, this is your job to do this, to encourage the gifts of other people. If you're not in relationships with people in the church where, like, you know people that well or they know you that well, Get in relationships with people like that, because that's where real growth is going to happen. It's one of the reasons why we do our community groups like we do, to put the same group of people together time and time again so that they can get to know one another and see things in one another and point out gifts and say, hey, you are great at this. You should use that for the kingdom of God. Get into a community group. That's one thing that you can do. Um, Allow yourself to be known by those people. A friend told me this week that I should say it like this. Um, tell people to get into the diamond lane, right? That's like on the turnpike. Like you have to have like three or more people in the car or something like that. Um, I heard a story once about someone who made a mannequin, right, and put it in. I think you got a ticket, but um, sometimes following Jesus is like that. You need someone in the car with you to, you know, to get you where you're going uh, at the speed that you should be. Some people I know are like really good at this naturally, but I bet for most of us, This sort of encouragement, this sort of um, vision for someone close to you, this sort of gift development is just totally off our radar. Like, we probably don't even think 
think like this at all. Let's put it back on our radar as a community. Because the way that the church works, the only way the church is going to work, is if everybody part is doing its part. If everybody part, whether it's, whether it's flashy or whether it's not flashy, is doing what it's meant to do um, for God's mission. So encourage the gifts of one another. That's the first way. The second way, and this goes along with that, but it's on kind of the other end of the spectrum, is sometimes you have to do like what Christian did for me. You have to call people out on something bad. You could see the gifts, you could see the potential, you could see the vision, but first, they need correction. They need to hear a hard word. This one is harder to do because it takes a load of trust and love and timing and tact, but it is just as important. It could be something like, Don, I have a vision for you that you could be the best husband and you could be the best father for your three little kids. You could be so fun and so loving and so awesome, but man, you got to get your anger under control. Or you got to get your drinking under control. Or you got to get your whatever under control. The, the, the biblical kind of churchy word for this is the word admonish. It's, it's something that Paul tells us in, a, in another of his letters, um, admonish one another. I have a confession to make. I didn't know what the word admonish meant up until like just a few months ago, actually. I don't know, it's just not a word we use, right? But the word that Paul uses is admonish. And he says, uh, admonish one another in all wisdom, right? In all wisdom, not for the sake of tearing someone down, not for the sake of making you feel good, not for the sake of making them feel bad, but in order to build someone up, to grow them up, to have them reconnect with who God made them to be in God's purposes. Um, when Christian admonished me, he wasn't doing it to feel good. He wasn't doing it to make me feel bad. He was doing it because he loved me, and he saw something better for me, and he wanted me to do that. Now, there's all kinds of warnings that I need to give you with admonishing people, right? Um, if you're doing it to make yourself feel good, you're not doing it. You're doing something else. I don't know what you're doing, but don't do it. Um, you can only do it when there's a trusted relationship, when you're close with the person. It takes sensitivity, compassion, timing. It takes a little bit of wisdom to know how and when to do this. It should be done by the right person in the right way at the right time, all of that. The biggest question, though, in regard to admonishing one another is are you open to it? Not to doing the admonishing, to being admonished. Are you open to it? Forget about the person in your mind who you can't wait to call later and just admonish the heck out of. <laughs> are you open to it? Or better yet, better yet, do you seek it? Do you seek it out? Do you want it? Because listen, Jesus' followers do. Jesus' followers know it's never about what I do, my performance, how good I am, that makes me good. I need to find out what's wrong so that I can change that. Jesus' followers seek out how um, we're wrong, how we're being hurtful, how we're being sinful. Like, tell me, please. This is what we should want from our brothers and sisters and our fathers and mothers in faith, because how else would we know? How else will we grow in that case? We need it. Um, if, your, if your first response to this sort of thing is like, no way, I can't possibly be wrong or do anything wrong, you got some work to do. All right, the third thing to think about, and we got to wrap up because it's child dedication time. The third thing, and this is what happens to all of us at, in our faith at some point or another, is that we just get complacent. Um, we get apathetic. Our faith comes to rest. Um, inertia, right? Things, things at rest stay at rest unless they're pushed or pulled. And has that ever described your faith? 
just resting, not really doing anything. Listen to what the writer to the letter of Hebrews, the writer of the letter of Hebrews says to us. He says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, to stir one another up. Other translations say to spur one another on, which is like, you know, like the horse, they put it into the horse and it makes it go. Um, I don't know what that's, I don't know what that, I don't know more about it than that. I know there's a basketball team, the San Antonio Spurs, and their logo is the spur, so I'm assuming that's what it is. Um, <laughs> uh, another translation is provoke one another, like provoke one another to love and good deeds. I like stir one another up because I make my son's chocolate milk every morning. And if you have the experience of adding chocolate to milk, uh, you know that eventually, if that cup sits there, all the chocolate powder, as well as you can mix it, all the chocolate powder settles to the bottom. Um, and that's what our faith is like, like unmixed chocolate milk. We, we, need to, we need to be stirred up sometimes. We need to be stirred up. And I have to wrap up, so I'm not going to go into it. But um, think about this week, what you can do to stir up someone in your life who you can think to yourself, gosh, that person's faith needs a jump start. That person, they used to be like super into it and super involved, and they're not anymore. Or, like, I know that person's kind of walking away, kind of, you know, what can I do to stir them up? It could be a direct conversation, like, hey, Matt, how's your faith going? It seems kind of stagnant. It could be something um, a little more indirect, like, hey, this is what God has been doing in my life. Let me tell you about it, and then maybe that will encourage you to have something similar. It could be, hey, I'm doing this thing to serve God. I'm leading youth, I'm teaching kids, I'm going to the soup kitchen, I'm building a shed for my neighbor, whatever it is. Bring them along. Um, force that person into a role where they're forced to grow a little bit, where they're forced to be challenged. Um, that's one of the ways we can stir one another up because that's what, that's what we as family do. We stir each other up. We call each other out, correct, and admonish one another. We see gifts in our brothers and sisters um, to what they could do. We have a vision for them. And so encourage and challenge, call them to get going in following Jesus. Growing up one another like this raising one another in the faith, which is what we will pledge to do for these children in a little bit. This is mission critical for the work that God has given us to do as a community to reach the people of Monmouth County with the good and gracious news that Jesus Christ loves them, that God loves them. When we do that for one another, we live into the reality that we are in fact children of God. Sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers beloved by him. When we do that, we build one another up to be missionaries, to go and to bring that good news. When we do this for one another, not only are we serving one another, but we are strengthening each other to go out and to serve people who don't have the strength to serve themselves. And so we're going to wrap up this You Do Who You Are series. And remember, we are what God has made us. You are what God has made you. Not what you've made of yourself, but what God has made of you. He has made you his child. He has made you a missionary meant to go and share. He has made you his servant, and he has made you uh, into this family to grow up one another. And so as we uh, end this series, I just want to say, um, remember these things. Uh, think like this. See like this. Um, live like this, pray like this, act like this. Let's pray. God, we thank you for uh, the fact that you have made us your children, which makes us your family.
Lord, we ask you that you would continue to grow up, grow us up through one another. That you would continue, Lord, um, to put the people onto our hearts who we need to spur on, who we need to stir up, who we need to provoke. That you would put the people onto our hearts um, who we need to have difficult conversations with or, um, or challenging conversations or admonish and give us, give us all of the wisdom Give us all of the wisdom that, that we can handle and, on, and how to do that the right way to get people uh, back on track to following you. We pray also, God, um, that you would help us, give us eyes to see the gifts, the potential that other people have around us. And help us, Lord, to be people who can support, who can raise up, who could uh, challenge those folks like that. Lord, we pray that as a community, um, we would all learn to develop our gifts, that we wouldn't neglect the gift that you have given us so that we can be, be a people who together are light in this, in this world around us and bringing the good and gracious news of Jesus to those who don't know it. That's really all we care about. We commit all of this to you, Lord, and we put it in your hands, knowing that it belongs to you anyway. In your name we pray. Amen.